welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, we conclude our two-part series on Samuel Clemens, better known, of course, as Mark Twain. He spent his final two years of his life in a fabulous mansion in Reading called Stormfield. My guest is Brent Colley, an avid historian on Reading and neighboring Fairfield County towns, and he's also the first selectman of Sharon, Connecticut in Litchfield County. He's going to be sharing more incredible stories about the last two years of Samuel Clemens' life, just like he did in part one. And now stay tuned for part two of Reading's favorite son, Mark Twain. Samuel Clemens, arguably America's best-known author of all time under his pen name of Mark Twain, spent 25 years of his life in Connecticut. 17 of those years were spent in Hartford, a prolific period of writing that turned out such gems as The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, just to name two. That was at the peak of his writing career. At the twilight of his life, he moved from a grand apartment on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan to the quiet woods of Reading, Connecticut. He would spend his final two years between 1908 and 1910 at a grand mansion built for him in Reading called Stormfield. Much transpired at Stormfield and significant parts of his life played out in a number of ways. Brent Colley knows these stories quite well. He's a fifth-generation Reading native who has since moved to Sharon, where he's finishing up his fifth term as first selectman. Brent has carried on his grandfather's passion for local history and studied Clemens intently. There are three parts to the Clemens life in those last two years that we're going to focus on in this episode. First off is the fact that he was finally able to spend some time with his two remaining children, daughters Clara and Jean. Second, the massive falling out between Clemens and his business manager and personal secretary. And finally, his final few hours before passing on at his mansion. Samuel Clemens had a difficult life in terms of the death of his children and his beloved wife. His only son, Langdon, died at just 19 months old of diphtheria. Clemens had taken him for a ride in his baby carriage on a cold day without a warming blanket. Langdon got sick shortly after, and Clemens blamed himself for his son's death. His favorite daughter, Susie, died at the age of 24. She contracted spinal meningitis while Clemens and his wife were away in Europe. Susie was more or less his favorite, and had always aspired to be a writer like him, following in his footsteps. Clemens' wife, Olivia, whom he called Livy, died while they were living in Italy. They'd gone there in an unsuccessful attempt to allow the climate to improve her health. His daughter, Jean, suffered from epileptic seizures, but doctors didn't know what it was at the time. And Brent says the condition came on during a trip to the Berkshires. There was an accident up in Lee, Massachusetts, um, a horse accident. I think the horse got scared by a, a train up that way, and it just got worse from there. And she was kind of removed from the family because she would have these outbursts. Brent says that on one particular occasion, the seizure got a little bit out of control. Katie Leary was their housekeeper and, and nurse and, and pretty much everything for a long time. And 
there was a big outburst with Jean and she tried to um, harm Miss Learzy. So that's why she went away, but she was able to come back. After being institutionalized away from the family, Samuel Clemens lobbied Jean's physician to allow her to come to Stormfield for a trial visit. Everything went well. So well, in fact, that Clemens wound up buying his daughter a farm not far from Stormfield. It was large, 250 acres, and just down the hill from where his mansion was. The farm came to be known locally as Jean's Farm. Brent says it was clear from reading her diary and from other accounts at that time that she was enjoying having her own farm and being in the community. She did take full interest in the farm. Uh, local kids mentioned how much they enjoyed hanging you know, out with her. Well, at this point, Clemens' own health was starting to diminish. Brent says that he would sail to his getaway island where the climate agreed with him a place where he played on the island's name to suit his needs. He called Bermuda Bermuda, you know, because it was always his happy place. Just before Christmas in 1909, Clemens returned home from a visit to Bermuda and found Jean actively decorating Stormfield for the holidays. The two got to spend some quality time together that week leading up to the holiday. Jean's older sister, Clara, meantime, had gotten married and was in Germany with her husband. Well, the same housekeeper who had been attacked by Jean, Katie Leary, leading to Jean's banishment in an institution, made a horrible discovery early that Christmas morning. Katie Leary comes in and she's frantic and Jean is dead. The doctor said that she had had a seizure the previous night while taking a bath and had drowned. Clemens, understandably, was devastated. For him, that's why Jean's death was so tragic was because he had realized as a father how much he had lost. And then for her to pass away, you know, Christmas Eve, uh, it's even worse. After this incident, Clemens wrote his very last piece of literature, The Death of Jean. Clemens' last surviving daughter, Clara, was a lot like him in temperament and style, and they often clashed. They were so much alike that Brent says the actor who famously portrayed Mark Twain for many years, Hal Holbrook, even commented on it when he crossed paths with Clara. Clara would be the one that would live on until 1962, I believe. Hal Holbrook, who was Mark Twain, longer than Mark Twain was Mark Twain, um, met her just prior to her death. And uh, he was like, she looks just like him. Clara's time in Stormfield was quite memorable, but for many different reasons than Jean. Clara, who sang opera, married a conductor of some renown, and when Clemens decided to hold a massive fundraiser at the mansion to finance a new library for Reading, it was Clara and her husband who were the featured performers. Additionally, Clara became pregnant and would give birth to Clemens' only grandchild at that Stormfield mansion. Unfortunately, the child, named Nina, was born several months after Clemens died, and so he never got to meet her. But perhaps the most notable activity that Clara was engaged in was the breakup of the relationship between Clemens and his business manager and personal secretary. It's called the Ashcroft Lyon Affair because it features Ralph Ashcroft, the business manager, and Isabel Lyon, the personal secretary. Clemens had first met Lyon at a party near Hartford, at the time, Lyon lived with her mother in nearby Farmington. She was a very efficient housekeeper, bookkeeper, and secretary. And over the years, she became a very close confidant for Clemens. 
Well, in fact, after Clemens' wife passed away, Brent says it became quite clear that Lyon wouldn't have minded being next in line to be married to Clemens. Isabel probably would have, you know, liked to be with Samuel Clemens more than than Ralph, but, uh, you know, Clemens wasn't going in that direction. And so eventually Lyon and Ashcroft got married. While Clemens attended the ceremony, he also let it be known that he wasn't happy about it, and he also didn't think it was a good fit. Turns out he was right. They would get divorced, but not until after Clemens had passed away. But it wasn't that marriage that soured Clemens on Ashcroft and Lyon. It was concern about their tactics and their intentions. Clara had approached her father and tried to convince him that Ashcroft and Lyon were taking advantage of him and likely trying to embezzle from him. She told Clemens that Lyon, who was in charge of the household budget, was spending too much on renovations on the house Clemens had given her, about a half mile from Stormfield, called the Lobster Pot. Well, Clemens didn't believe his daughter at first. There were reasons why Clara may have wanted Lyon out of the way. With Lyon in charge of the household budget, Clara felt that her allowance stipend wasn't quite high enough. Further, Clara had had an affair before she was married with her piano teacher, who was married. Lyon knew about this, and some researchers speculate that this may have played into Clara's attempts to box Lyon and Ashcroft out of her father's affairs. Plus, Clara and Lyon were jealous of each other's closeness to Clemens, leading to an unholy rivalry between them. Brent says, overall, it's very difficult to try and unravel this situation accurately, but he thinks that as Clemens was getting older and frail, Clara decided it was time to act. At some moment in time, Clara Clemens feels that they're trying to undermine her estate. She was watching her inheritance fall into the hands of people she didn't necessarily feel she could trust. At one point during this controversy, Ashcroft made some rather outrageous remarks to a neighbor and, it turns out, a good friend of Clemens. He had bragged about how he controlled Clemens' real estate holdings and his finances. Well, those comments got back to Clemens through a couple of channels, and he clearly was troubled by them. Clemens finally agreed to a proposal from Clara to have an independent review undertaken of the household books. For this, Clemens turned to his longtime, very good friend and benefactor, Henry Rogers. Rogers had made his fortune climbing the corporate ladder at John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company. And he had befriended Clemens along the way, and in fact had come through with loans on several occasions when Clemens had made poor business decisions, leaving himself badly in debt. Clemens did, by the way, always repay every penny. Well, finally, the moment of truth had arrived, and Clemens and his daughter boarded the train at the West Reading Station and took it to New York City to hear the results of Roger's investigation. He was supposed to look into what was really going on. And unfortunately, the day that Twain goes down to meet him to get the information, he's died. Well, Clemens was once again devastated by this shocking revelation that took him completely by surprise. Even though people had tried to reach out to Twain that he was dead, he didn't know. So he takes the train with Clara down to New York City and then finds out that he's dead. So what was the final verdict? What did Rogers learn? Had Lyon and Ashcroft committed embezzlement? You could go in either direction. I mean, I I don't think that they were doing anything that would take away from him. But I think Claire's concern about 
losing what she wanted was probably the, the, the bigger catalyst for the whole scandal or whatever you want to call it. Well, Clemens ultimately sided with Clara. He cut off both Ralph Ashcroft and Isabel Lyon, took back their lobster pot from Lyon, and sent them on their way. By now, Samuel Clemens' health was rapidly deteriorating. He spent most of the fall of 1909 bedridden. His biographer, friend, and neighbor, Art Bigelow Payne, the man who had convinced Clemens to move to Ready in the first place, decided to help. His friendship with Clemens was so tight that he came to Clemens' rescue as he got sicker and sicker near the end of his life. As his health declined, um, he would move to you know, Stormfield and, and take care of him. So they were, they were close. Both Payne and his doctors convinced Clemens to take another trip to Bermuda in an attempt to salvage his health. That trip occurred in early 1910. Well, in early April of that year, Brent says Clemens made an important life decision. He wanted to return to Reading. I, I think he may have known what was next, and he just felt that he wanted to be in Reading uh, for his final passing. Brent says Clemens commented, quote, I just need one more breath of that sweet Reading air, and everything will be fine. On his way back to Stormfield, Clemens made another important decision. He wrote a letter to his lawyer to say that Gene's farm was to be sold and the proceeds were to be added to the other funds already raised to build the new library for Reading. He further clarified that it should be named the Gene Clemens Memorial Library. The sale of the 250-acre farm raised $6,000 for the project, a very tidy sum in those days. Brent says that the farm was later purchased by Alan and Helen Hermes. He was a famous painter. Brent says that they made a highly generous contribution. They later donated the property back to the Mark Twain Library in the present day. So it only didn't only give once, it gave twice. The owners of the Twain Library were able to sell the land at a later date and raise millions for an expansion project. In addition, there's an annual Hermes art show in Reading. The proceeds benefit the library. It's believed that Clemens' letter to his attorney directing for Gene's farm to be sold was the last formal letter he ever wrote. On the morning of April 21st, 1910, Clemens seemed to be a little bit better, although he had been sinking rapidly in recent days. At Stormfield were his two longtime doctors, his daughter Clara and her husband, and Art Bigelow Payne, the biographer, friend, and neighbor. Early on in that evening, you know, he kind of aroused a bit, as tends to happen when people are, are passing on, and um, talked a little bit about Clara. A lot of people believe that in that conversation, he was making note that he understood that she was pregnant. And then um, he reached for a book. Brent says that Clemens motioned for a piece of paper on which he scribbled a note about wanting someone to get his glasses. The book he was reaching for was about the French Revolution, and Brent says he had one last attempt at speaking. He just basically said weekly, give me my glasses. And that was kind of what he had kind of written you know, on a piece of paper. Then he got the glasses and slowly faded away. Clemens' body was removed from Stormfield and taken by train to Elmira, New York for burial next to his beloved wife, Olivia Langdon Clemens, in the Langdon family plot. Brent says that Samuel Clemens may have only lived in Reading for a couple of years, but his impact on not only the town, but 
Far Beyond was profound. It's really interesting that no matter where you live or, or no matter what your background is, that Mark Twain is relevant. And I think that's a pretty strong indication of what Reading is to the worldwide connectivity with Mark Twain. And in a closing story, Samuel Clemens was born in a year when Halley's Comet passed by the Earth. He also died in a year when he came again. And since it only comes every 74 years, the odds of it bookmarking Clemens' time on Earth are slim indeed. The original Stormfield Mansion burned to the ground in 1923, destroying everything except the foundation and the gardens. A new owner built a new mansion right on the original foundation with the gardens intact just two years later. Well, every so often an event is held at this new mansion, and the current owners have been quite gracious about opening up their house for those events. On the occasion of the 100th anniversary of Clemens' death in 2010, there was an event at that house, and Brent Colley was there. I was actually in the area that was his bedroom. And that was really cool. And what's really funny is that, you know, he came in with the, the Haley's comment and, and went out. And for some weird reason, an airplane, you know, with, with that stream of white behind it, was flying right outside the window. He took a picture of that eerie white plume. And if you check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT, I've posted it there for you to see as well. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Brent Colley, avid Reading historian and also the first selectman of Sharon, Connecticut. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. (laughs) 